Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. In this episode, we're going to do one of our normally deep and we hope enlightening dives into artificial intelligence, hailed by many as the opening of new and exciting advancements in nearly every facet of our lives, while being cursed by others as an inevitable gateway to incalculable and devastating harm. Our guest is Jeremiah Aoyang, a technology advisor and researcher based in the Silicon Valley, who is a widely published writer and lecturer on major trends in technology and emerging markets. He has been an analyst with Forrester Research, and he's also a founding partner and research director at the Altimeter Group, and he's worked as an advisor in the corporate world to several leading companies, including Adobe, Cisco, Hewlett-Packard, Wells Fargo, and Visa. I welcome Jeremiah Aoyang to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. It's an honor to be here, Michael. Thank you. Well, it's also, I think, uh, honorable for us to talk about consequences, maybe, because uh, you've thought about it and you've written about it. A lot of people are concerned about it. I don't want to necessarily get us into a funk here initially, because there are many wonderful things to say about the possibilities of uh, AI. But let's uh, get your take at first on, because I think we certainly didn't in any way understand what the consequences would be in social media, and there's an analogy there. What did we learn, first of all, as you see it from ChatGPT, aside from the fact that there were about a million users in this course of five days? What do we learn of consequence? AI is the most consequential technology that we will probably see in our lifetimes. All of the technology trends that have come before it really were the, the bricks that laid the foundation, big data, cloud, um, apps, social media, everybody sharing their media online. And it all led up to this moment where that information could be analyzed, sorted, tagged, called tokenized, and then reassembled, called vectorized. And it seems like this creature is sentient. It's alive, but it's just really pattern matching. But it will change so many aspects uh, of our world, from business to our social lives to even adjusting our careers or what we even consider as being human. AI is extremely consequential. And consequential, let me get back to what we've just had with AI code, um, open source and democratization. Uh, but then people say, you know, what's ISIS going to do <laughs> with a code like that? I mean, that sort of represents in a metaphoric way to me the polarities we're talking about here. And we're moving forward with a kind of Pandora's box here that we don't necessarily understand the consequences of. This is true. Um there are open source versions. Um, OpenAI started off as open source as a nonprofit, but qu quickly realized for safety reasons, they were going to make it more closed and offer it in a more commercial sense as we see with their partnership with Microsoft. But there are certainly open source versions available on uh, code repositories uh, that people can download and use. And like other technologies in the past, whether they be um, propellants or fire or splitting the ab and atom, they can be used for great good and great harm. So those things don't change. It, the, the issue is with how humans wield these powerful technologies. I don't necessarily think the issue is with the technology itself. No, I agree with you. I think the issue is with humans and with the potential for bad actors and what they may be capable of doing. And that's what we really can't see. We don't have a periscope. We can't go around the corner here and know where we're headed with it. And there is a good deal of apprehension, understandable apprehension. Your feelings, your thoughts? Yes, um, I think there is a great concern. So the, the 
most popular mantra that I hear amongst the AI space is whoever creates the um, AGI or artificial general intelligence, which is e equivalent to a human intelligence, will quote, rule the world. Um, if it sounds grandiose in a Tolkien novel, then yes, it is. So it, very much that way. The thing is, we won't even know when that moment happens because it's learning at a B, at an exponential curve. Or sometimes we're hearing folks like Tristan Harris reference it even as a double exponential curve where it looks like a flat line, low adoption, then all of a sudden in five days, one million users, and it keeps on continuing to go up. You know, GPT will be at a billion users probably before the end of the year, uh, which is one of the fastest growing consumer apps ever. So we cannot even understand and and fathom and predict what an exponential curve looks like or even something even steeper. So that is why we just don't know what's going to happen completely, Michael. And yet we have people like Jeffrey Hinton, the so-called godfather of AI, telling us we really need to slow down. There's a six-month waiting period now. We've got uh, He's kind of a Paul Revere going out, leaving Google, going out to tell us about the dangers and perils that may face us. But then we got people like Elon Musk uh, saying we're summoning the devil, uh, you know, I don't know what, just as a layperson, not a tech person, I don't know what to make of all that. I don't know, because Musk is building an AI company, and Musk is, you know, saying it's going to wind up robots killing us when self-cars have killed a few people. You know, this is sort of the two sides that I see. And I, I think I want to talk about the benefits, because I see a remarkable cornucopia of benefits in all this. But I'm concerned, and obviously I'm trying to communicate that concern. I know many people are, because we don't know where we're going. We didn't know where we were going really with the internet. The net effect will be a positive gain for humanity. This will benefit us in many ways, but we will certainly have unexpected um, things happen. Um, there will be certainly job loss. We're going to see some issues around ethics. Some people will be, un be profiled in ways we never expected that we can't even possibly predict all of those things right now. Um, there is some hope that things would slow down naturally. There's actually a chip shortage. Um, there's a 40-week chip shortage uh, to receive the processors, um, and most of those are already reserved by the big tech companies like um, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. So things are going to not move as quickly as some of them would predict. Um, not to comment any, on any of those individuals, you said in specifically, but sometimes there is rhetoric so they can position themselves and launch their own AIs. So we just have to peel back the onion a bit to see what is the truth, what is truth. There is clearly a race for every company to have an AI as quickly as possible. Yeah, Microsoft and Google are at it now, and a race with companies as well as with countries. I mean, I was thinking when you were talking about a chip shortage, we did a, a little plug for a po podcast we did just last week with Orville Schell, who's one yeah. of the leading authorities on China, who you know pointed out the fact that Taiwan makes about 92% of the chips that are out there. So we don't know what's going to happen with Taiwan either. Uh, what Russia did with Ukraine, China may do with Taiwan. That is a hot spot we'll have to carefully watch. And you can see the posturing from both sides. That would be um, a critical uh, disruption on whoever has that control. Well, these are things that we can't predict, alas. Um, we can't crystal ball gaze into it. But what do you think generally about the six-month secession? Is any going to, because, you know, this is like saying, uh, in my mind, a little bit like saying when Gutenberg invented the printed press, People are going to not stop. Going to stop reading for six months, or something along those lines. 
it's too late for that. It's not going to happen. It's not feasible. No way. So th there's no way this is going to be put on pause. The open source versions are out there. People can already grow uh, their own and train their own models. It's just not going to happen. So instead, what we're seeing is uh, regulation happening where companies and countries are saying we won't use it in this way or we want to see how data is going to be used. We're seeing inside of corporations, they're setting up data ethics boards. Last week, we saw the United States White House set up a, a AI czar and put over $100 million into a fund in order to look over this. Uh, Kamala and Joe Biden hosted CEOs from the AI companies to try to let them know that they're going to be watchful over the space. But there's no way that any country can slow this down, especially if they have the lead. This is a race. It is indeed. And uh, maybe some of the more serious doomsday scenarios, you know, of Terminators and robots killing us are pretty far-fetched and a long way off. But let's talk about the benefits, because those really, I think, need to be considered in the whole picture and need to be considered and maybe championed in a lot of ways, because it's pretty exciting. I mean, I'm thinking about, we don't, again, we don't even know the benefits in any specific ways, but we know they're there potentially in healthcare and economic prosperity. Uh, I think you've written about animals and the way we treat animals uh, with respect to climate change. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I can go through the whole list here, but it's extraordinary what the possibilities are. It is. So, at the most basic level, the laborious tasks that humans are doing, whether it's behind a computer or with manual labor with robotics, can be reduced, if not eliminated. And so humanity has a chance to reset on how we have a relationship to work. Um, we may not think of work as something grueling and grinding, but instead of something more inspirational and enlightening if we can focus on things that make us more human. So I see opportunity with technology and AI aiding us in that way. Secondly, AI can do a few things that humans cannot do well, which is to process a tremendous amount of information on the fly instantly after it's been trained and find patterns. So there's a term emerging in the AI space is that AI can quickly find a needle in a needle stack. It's something that humans just are not capable of doing. And that could benefit it in, this, in many of the problems that we have, the mega problems, uh, maybe improving longe longevity or our health span or improving, improving climate or even just reducing the costs of um, you know, our, our daily items. So there's a lot of opportunity for that. You remind me a bit of uh, Jaron Lanier. I don't know if you've read his thoughts on AI, but he... They call him the dismal optimist because he says, you know, humanity and what it can do for humanity is where the real emphasis ought to be as opposed to getting too tech or too machine-like or whatever. Uh, actually, Robert, a question from one of our listeners in Los Angeles is, what makes your guests feel that the net effect of AI will be positive? Or do you feel that way, I guess? I do. I am a technology optimist. I do know there are certainly downsides, and we will go through a trough or two or three for sure. Uh, but overall technology has aided humanity in many ways. Uh, lifespans are going up, technology enables this. We do have more information. Uh, we can have more time in our day if we use technology to make things uh, at a greater ease. I think the bigger issues are sometimes outside of technology. Like how do we how do we manage the economy, which is something that's going to happen outside of the technology sector alone? Uh, it's going to require governments and leaders to be involved and in leaning into this as well. And then secondly is 
really looking inward. Like, is this an opportunity for every human to find self-actualization? I think those are deeper things that we could discuss uh, that technology will enable us to have that, that opportunity. If there's a couple of different science, science fiction um, universes that one can relate to, and I certainly more relate to Star Trek, which is when Earth has plenty of resources and it's more of a utopia and really your merit is based upon your reputation and exploring new areas. Yeah, I like that sanguine view you have and uh, hope that you're right about that. When you talk about, for example, extending lifespans, I think immediately of the fact that there are going to be more people on the earth and that means fewer resources and problems with population begin to get exponential potentially too. But uh, these, so many of these things are two-sided. There's no getting around it. Um, what about the concern, though, about job replacement, which is one of the big concerns? I mean, if things become... I was just reading, for example, about IBM possibly uh, uh, getting rid of about 8,000 jobs that could be filled by AI. I mean, those are the mm -hmm. kinds of things that a lot of people are very concerned about. Yeah, two things. So some of the companies, and it's also Meta, Dropbox, IBM, and even Chegg. The, well, you should be familiar with Chegg as a professor. All of them have indicated they will reduce hiring or they're reducing jobs or they're slowing growth due to AI. But I warn a little bit of caution. In some cases, that is PR in order to hide or disguise poor financial performance. Instead of blaming it on the intern, let's blame it on AI. Uh, but that's point one. The second point is jobs will be lost. There is no question. But let's refine that. Um, tasks, tasks will be lost. Jobs can still sustain and remain, but the any job that has repeated tasks that are done over and over, especially with a digital device, those will be absolutely automated. There is no question. So in, in many cases, those are entry-level positions, but sometimes they're middle manager, knowledge worker positions as well. And any job that is sifting through information and trying to find patterns, such as lawyers, in some case physicians, um, they could be automated as well, uh, radiologists as well. So all of these roles will have to re-examine how can they upskill, and now that they have better information and insights, can they make better decisions? Make better decisions, but also is there some way of preparing for what may be really an extraordinary loss in jobs? I think about, for example, developers and programmers. and I mean, tech is laying off immense number of people right now. Uh, tech was laying off workers before we saw this latest AI boom, so that was a trend already in, in the making. Yeah. And yes, there is some irony that the developers that are creating AI um, might be creating themselves out of a job, so that is certainly happening. Um, yes, this is an issue. Um, I don't know what the the economic solution is other than what many have proposed around universal basic income. But again, that has to happen at the government level. That's not something the tech industry, who I generally am sitting with and represent, can solve alone. How does the tech industry, from your perspective, uh, stack up with respect to some of these questions, which are ultimately moral questions? I mean, you know, there's been successes on the moral front. There have been failures on the moral front. How do you see it? These are humans using technologies, and one thing that the the tech industry has been poor at doing is understanding the, the impact of humanities and, and ethics due to technology. Every single time there's been a race to be the um, have the most adoption in the market, 
uh, sometimes at the cost of understanding the ethical implications. And we specifically saw that with the internet, social media, and many other tools, even how data is used. So that is a continued uh, issue. However, most of the tech companies now, actually, that's not. this is not true, I take that back. Some of the companies have um, tech ethics groups or data ethics groups or AI ethics teams. Unfortunately, I heard some of them were being laid off from some of those big tech companies. Uh, so they really need to, to bolster that. The, the issue is that these tech companies, the, they're under the thumb of Wall Street and many of them have been suffering. So they have to quickly launch these products. Uh, even Google, um, lambasted um, Microsoft were saying, you guys are so successful, but we have no choice but to space race this and launch as quickly as we can, which we saw from Google's IOs announcement this week. So what I'm telling you is there's a lot of flux. People are trying to be thoughtful, but we have to move at, the, at an extreme pace in order to be competitive in the commercial market. Well, in fact, let me give you a little scenario. Uh, I had uh lunch recently with a friend of mine who had many years as a successful news director and ran a couple TV stations, very thoughtful guy. And he said, and I had just seen a movie called Air, which, by the way, was a really good movie. It's about the <laughs> attempt to get Michael Jordan to sign with Nike. I will say more, no spoilers on that. I mean, from the sounds of it, it doesn't seem like it would be a movie that would draw you in, but it's a very well done film with Matt Damon, all the competition. And the competition is brutal. I mean, it's ruthless to get to sell essentially tennis shoes. This friend of mine said, you know, what if um, Adidas wanted to ace out Nike and they put out total disinformation story? They created it through AI, a story, for example, that there was proof. And by the way, this is just fiction, so don't think I'm saying anything that's true here. This is from my friend. Something that was done to the arches of the feet. There's some damage was done. And they had video to back it up. I mean, think about this for a moment, because I did think about it a lot. And they put it out there as misinformation, and it's out there, and of course it goes uh, all over the place. And um, then the other company comes back with even a more serious kind of false misinformation story against their competitor. I mean, in any real world, these are the kinds of things that could exist, right? Yes. Um, this morning I was watching videos created by Stable Diffusion and other tools, and they're becoming more and more real. Um, and But I think we are now questioning what is real. Uh, I think that it's a general question on, is that image real or not? That's what I am. After seeing the Pope in a puffy jacket or you know former presidents breakdancing, um, uh, there's general disbelief. So that results in two um, actions. One is that traditional media needs to come forward with a way of verifying news information. And secondly, I think we'll see a new type of information protocol emerge called proof of fact. Um, in the blockchain, there's something called proof of work, proof of stake. So we'll see some type of way where information is, there's a, a source that it is stamped with some authenticity. We'll see those kinds of uh, levers as well as regulation and regulation that might be efficacious, you think? I don't think regulation can move fast enough for content being generated on the fly because there's a everybody has these yeah. tools, right? The difference between a you know splitting the atom is and and AI is everybody has the opportunity to use AI. It's it's you don't even need an app. It's just just in the browser. It's native, versus you would need plutonium and an incredible amount of knowledge uh, to do the the former. 
Here's uh, some questions from our listeners. Let me begin with Stefan from uh, Würzburg, Germany, who wants to know, how do you think about the regulation of AI, which we just kind of let ourselves into? So thank you, Stefan, for that question. Uh, as you see things, Jeremiah, where's regulation going to be, if at all? There, yeah, so there isn't any regulation now. There's just been posturing or bans. Italy banned AI, the AI from GPT for a period of time, and now it's unbanned. So um, what I suspect is countries will expect that user data is is uh, verified or some type of way of proof, but I just don't know how that's going to work. Um, you'll see countries like uh, China continue to have their great uh, Chinese firewall up where people information can't get in or out. Um, I see... Um, this is tied to regulation, but many corporations will be launching their own versions of GPT uh, based upon the data from within their own companies. And regulators would probably smile upon that because it's within the uh, boundaries of some form of safety um, from verified data. Um, I just don't know how regulators would be able to to do this in, in a way that that is going to be universal. It's, it's going to be really challenging. The, the one thing to note is this is different than social media because the AI is learning. And so as it input, as information is input into it, it actually changes the data and the data corpus itself, which then is spit out to other users. So it's evolving and changing. So just to put blanket bans on a portion of that is not realistic. Understood. I just don't really understand, though, what we can do about the flood tide that may be attached to weaponizing disinformation or just, I mean, spammers, election manipulators, all of those kinds of things are off on the horizon. And uh, Well, they're not, it's not on the horizon. Those have been happening for over a decade. It's just, those are already issues that have existed. Thank you. But Let that, me rephrase that. Exacerbated yeah. on the horizon or made worse, yeah. made more intense and more profound. It, it'll become more realistic, I think. I don't know if they're Maybe the frequency, but even if the frequency of the publication of disinformation increases, we can only consume X amount of information per day. So it's just that it will look more realistic. But again, I think everybody is going to be a little bit more skeptical and look to verified sources as a form of truth. Truth. I don't know if you uh, are familiar with some of the speculation, though. They're talking about actually decoding brain activity and setting up language models uh, of brain activity, uh, which mm -hmm. could lead to Mind reading. I mean, this is sort of brave new world, something out of Huxley. You know, I, I hadn't even considered this until I just recently read something about it. We're, we're in uh, all kinds of new territory here that's tough to be realistic about. Um, but let's talk about some of the stuff that is in your bailiwick. Before I do, though, let me go to some more questions. We've got Chris from Tempe. And thanks for the question, Chris. How do you foresee that broad access to AI will change public education and higher education. How can teachers prepare themselves to make positive use of AI? Mm -hmm. I don't claim to be an expert in higher education. Uh, however, I think that the way they do testing or sending home essays to write, that will completely change. Just requiring students not to use it and then trying to ascertain with software, was it created by a AI? that's not going to work in the long run. I think instead that students could be tested maybe in person on their critical thinking skills or um, speaking on a topic or debating on a topic. I think there's a different way that we could look at this. And, and the same thing, you know, going back, I, 
decades ago, the slide rule or the calculator, people held up the same concerns, but now it's an expected tool that, not, well, not the slide rule, it's expected tool that people would use. So I think we'll have to reframe yet again um, how that's done. Even, even the notion of textbooks seems a little archaic when you can get information from GBT. And that's what Chegg was seeing as a, a threat to their business model. So it's possible we could see all of the publications from, let's say, Harvard, all of their Harvard professors, everything they've written, um, all of the in-class materials that could be assembled into a large language model and they could train off that and build the Harvard GPT for students. Um, and they could reflect off that and use that throughout their, not just their time at the university, but throughout their careers. That would be a big benefit and people could add to that. But so as, that a, would be, yeah, as an old English professor, I sometimes uh, find myself thinking or musing about, if I got a student composition, how do I know it was composed by the student as opposed to AI? There's software that can... There is software it, that can trace it, it's true. Yeah, but, but it's not a high accuracy. And then you're breaking the exactly. relationship with the student by accusing them of cheating. That too. It's just yeah. it's just not a great way. So instead, figuring out a better way to test them. Well, we're maybe reinventing educational tools or pedagogical tools. Mm -hmm. That could be exciting. I read an essay recently by a young English professor who said, maybe with all this job displacement will have young people feeling maybe they shouldn't go the STEM route in their education. Maybe they should go back to the humanities and art and study those kinds of things. And that would be good because those enrollments have gone down so precipitously and so profoundly. Uh, and don't forget the trades, which is one of the most, which is the sector to be most immune from AI. Well, here's a related question from Juliet in Paris, France. And thank you for the question, Juliet. She says, with the rapid advancement of AI, do you foresee a time when AI will surpass human creativity in areas such as art, literature, and music? So the way that the tools work is they grab all of the great works from humankind, and then they analyze it. It's called, and they break it into its core component called tokenizing it. So each word is, becomes a token, each phrase becomes a token, and then they can they can guess with great accuracy what is the word that's going to come after that. And then when you ask it a question, it'll analyze that, and then it'll predict what should the sentence be that should follow that. So it's not really creating anything that new. It's just regurgitating, remixing, mashing up what humans have already created. Yeah, I'm sure it can create permutations that we've probably never seen before, but it's, it's the... If you think of a bell-shaped curve of hum humanity's creativity, it's usually creating with the simple prompt things at the 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 top of the bell, you know, 70 to 80 percent. If you have more advanced prompts or it's learning, then yeah, it can push towards the top 10 percent of creative content. But yet we haven't really seen it go beyond what humans are capable of doing, but that could come. Um, clearly, artists are very concerned about this. And they were already concerned about Web3 and NFTs before that and social media before that. So to be an artist is um, you have to constantly evolve in the space. Uh, one of the art, so there was music that was being replicated by AI. And so AI Drake replicated his songs and, and the music industry, Michael, had a, a big tizzy about this and did cease and desist and had it removed from all of the popular uh, networks and social media networks. But one artist, Grimes, she said, no. Uh, in fact, I want AI artists to use it. And here, all of my stuff is open for you to use. However, if you use it, I want 50% of the revenues. 
<laughs> so she's using it to feed her creativity as as fodder, as base uh, that can be remixed, and then she can benefit from the AI in the crowd. You know, when I was talking uh, before we started talking with Shannon, our producer, about the fact that over across the pond, I believe in England, uh, one of the libraries, they uh, they try to duplicate a poem of William Blake that sounded like it was by William Blake, but done by AI. And something was missing, but it was pretty close, at least from what I was able to glean and, and extrapolate from it. Uh, what was missing? Just some of the sense of the distinctiveness of the voice. That's hard to replicate. You know, the, the poetic voice, uh, the nuances of it or the subtleties of it uh, that come through. I mean, you can replicate it to a degree that's sometimes almost indistinguishable. But they were saying, no, there's still the brand that's Blake's that can't be duplicated. Let's comment on that. So the music that was replicated, um, Drake's music, is... Um generally considered popular hip-hop so the popular sounds the popular art that's ingested more and there's more of it is probably going to be easier to replicate so any niche or long tail artist or creator probably can keep their voice alive in a very different way well let's talk about your bailiwick because uh, you've been dealing with trends and patterns and uh, people go to you for your advice what are the indicators for startups and venture capital and i ask that because there's around a billion I read in, in some of your writing for startups, which as a crow flies isn't a lot really in the big picture, is it? Uh, yeah, so I'm seeing different data now. So I think it's around seven to eight billion has been invested in the AI space. Oh, that's pretty uh, recent data then, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm seeing different stats. It depends how you, you look at it because when Microsoft invested in OpenAI, a lot of that is just credits to use Azure, which is their cloud computing. Uh, you need a tremendous amount of computing costs. And just some stats, to train um, OpenAI, ChatGPT, uh, OpenAI is the company, to train the model, you know, like training your child or a student, it costs $500 million of computing. It's pretty expensive. And every day, this is actually 30 days ago, the server costs or the compute costs was around 700K just to run the model. I'm sure it's increased exponentially at this point. Um, right now, most of the startups, and I'm attending at a minimum three events here in Silicon Valley in AI, most of the startups are A, either the large AI models, which are already off to the races, and I've already named a few of them, um, but the mass majority of quantity are small startups with just a handful of people working in them. It's called seed stage startups. They're very young, and they're creating many permutations. Um, and it comes in different flavors from AI infrastructure or AI applications or the latest flavor, which is AI agents, autonomous agents. Um, there's three to five different AI events happening in San Francisco, which is truly the epicenter of AI. Um, there's one particular neighborhood, uh, two neighborhoods actually now. The, the first neighborhood is Hayes Valley, close to Market in Venice where the startups are birthing. And it's been rebranded as Cerebral Valley. And that's where the this the, the hub is. And they are living together in co-working homes and they're constantly coding. And then the second place where we're seeing a nexus is Shack 15 at the Ferry Building, which is a gorgeous um, a co-working spot <clears throat> in the style of a, a Scandinavian design. And there's many meetups and hackathons happening there on the other side of market. 
So San Francisco is quickly birthing as the epicenter of AI right now. So there's a lot happening here. It's hard to keep up, even though it's my full-time attention. At the same time that we're reading about San Francisco going downhill and looking like a ghost town and all the rest of the Nordstrom's closing down and so forth. I mean, again, it's kind of a bipolar uh, assessment. Uh, Chad wants to know, uh, the more information we can get from AI, the less we have to learn individually. Do you think we're going to grow more generally ignorant with a reliance on AI for information? Uh, that's a good question, but let's take it, let's piece these out in different layers. So there's at the base layer, there's just data, which could just be ones and zeros, not sorted, you know, a bunch of Legos just thrown on the floor. The next level would be information, sorting that into like groups. So we have all the red ones, yellow ones, green ones, blue ones. And the next level after that would be intelligence. Ah, okay, we could build something. Here's the instructions. And we built this great Lego model of, of the Eiffel Tower as it's suggested. But perhaps at the highest level, and this is something AI has not been able to do, is to dole out wisdom. And that could be, instead of the Eiffel Tower, maybe we can make the Transamerica Pyramid, or we can make some new sculpture that has never existed before. So AI is going to be great at turning data into information, information and gleaning intelligence. But at the highest level, intelligence to wisdom, that's something that we will have um, the opportunity to do, at least for the short and midterm. Is this like your three segments to frame the market that you write about? Uh, I frame everything and segment everything. It's my training that I had as a forester analyst and having my own research firm. So yes, there's many ways to frame things. And here's Colin who says, blockchain and proof of fact is an appealing idea. It is hard to imagine how the definition of fact validation won't be hijacked itself. Yeah, that, that's also a concern. So we would probably see quite objective things on as proof of facts, dates, times, scientific information, things that can be proven with a proof. Um, so that's probably where it will start. And then from there, it would evolve into other things. And then you see the same behavior on Wikipedia. There's a listing of some facts and with citations at the bottom. But the Wikipedia's articles today are also subjective, giving multiple points of view. Uh, so not sure that would be a proof of fact unless it's pointing that there is debate around something. So also a good question. There's always nuance in all things. And uh, thanks for the questions. Questions, of course, are welcome. And I'd also welcome hearing from you some thoughts that you have or reflections that you have about just since you mentioned your background in research and analysis, how do you go about assessing the data that comes in? Because it's changing so fast on AI. I mm -hmm. mean, just give us a, a little perspective on your methodology and how it works. Sure. So, um, in my roles as an industry analyst, and I play many different roles. Like I'm, I'm also been an investor. Uh, I've been a CMO. I've been an entrepreneur. But my core um, that I truly find passion in, in is finding patterns in the market and then kind of forecasting what's going to happen. Sometimes I'm wrong, um, but sometimes I'm right. Um, probably right more often. Usually my timelines are off. Uh, I'm, I think things are going to happen longer than they do. Um, but typically a market goes through five questions, like what is it, why does it matter, how do I start, uh, what are best practices, and how do I integrate it into everything that I do. And I and I listen to the market, what question are they asking, that tells me uh, on the level of maturity. Um, I, I'm no stranger to seeing markets bloom and blossom with 100 to 1,000 startups very quickly. But the pace that we're seeing here is definitely faster. 
In particular, there is a website called thereisanaiforthat.com. It is a directory repository. And when I looked at it, I think about a week and a half ago, it was like 3,600 startups. And I believe there's over 4,000 now. So it's growing fast in the AI space. Um, the challenge here with keeping up with this is that there's a new type of technology uh, called autonomous agents. And autonomous agents are... Um, they need little human intervention or even direction and they operate on their own and they can actually go and create their own little programs and companies. Some people refer that to them as baby AGIs or baby artificial general intelligence uh, systems. And so it is like they can create their own companies uh, very quickly. And so we're going to see this proliferation of AIs creating AIs birthing. In, in fact, um, if I'd love to tell you, so um, I was asked to give a speech at the Frankfurt Auto Show around this type of topic. Um, and it was a TED talk for BMW. And they asked me to talk about what happens when when cars become uh, married with AI. And so my speech was cars become alive. And essentially it would know to self um, um, fuel up, it would go get itself charged. And then when it needed new tires, it would go self repair just as humans go to the doctor. And then it would go to school to get smarter. So it would upgrade its internal systems or its up upholstery because it's generating revenue by delivering packages or taking people on rides and like on a ride sharing app. And when it's at full capacity and it's generated enough revenue, maybe 80% of its capacity or 90%, then it would know it's time for it to reproduce just as all species do. And it would purchase another vehicle. So it, that I, I did that speech in 2017 and five, six years later, these things are slowly coming to to come to fruition, where we're seeing that autonomous software is replicating on its own. So that is an interesting thing to see. That makes it difficult to track. And yet you're tracking and you're always having to reason, always yeah, having to use. But how much of your intuition plays into that? Your um, gut. Yeah, there's patterns that you see with the entrepreneurs and the investors and, and the way that the market behaves and and sometimes even like the the meetings or the meetups or the events or the conferences, even the styles of them, tell you where you are in the market uh, and what types of investments. Like most of the investments are seed investments right now. So that tells you where the market is. But fast forward a year from now, a majority of them would be growth stage. So that means that these companies are getting larger. There's fewer companies and that will tell you um, how the market's maturing. Obviously, we can uh, look for user adoption, but a lot of those stats are not public yet. And here's Reed, and thanks for the question, Reed, who wants to know, AI might, may dispense wisdom or advice, but it isn't derived from its own experience. Is there a feeling that it may somehow develop an intricate or intrinsic, excuse me, soul? <laughs> I, that is an existential question, and I don't think it, it does have that, um, but it can fool you in that way. I think the the best example right now of the most human type of AI is Pi, P-I. And the website is Hey Pi, and it's by Inflection AI. It is using natural language. You can try it right now, um, and you can talk to it, and it'll talk back to you in a conversational tone. Unlike ChatGPT, it's not conversational. Um, it also has a voice system as well. I mentioned uh, Jaron Lanier before. He says all these analogies to the human sphere are absurd when you think about it. To say, for example, that AI, well, that, that human beings are like cars, 
would be comparable to talking about AI being like humans because if a, if a car can go faster than we can, you don't say the car runs faster than we do. Uh, I mean, he uses that, in other words, as a way for us to conceptualize the difference between the machine and the protoplasm, if you will. It is. There's no direct parallel. So the the most referenced book is called Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom. Yeah. Have you read that one? I know of it, yeah. I mean, I've read excerpts of it, yeah. 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 And think highly of his work. I know some of his work. Uh, let me go to another question from St. Paul, Minnesota. Thomas Chance uh, wants to know, where did you learn your framing and segment technique? Uh, those analogies you use are so clear. Where can one learn more about that? Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, part of it's just innate. I remember at an early age just creating graphs and, and putting unstructured data into structured boxes around things around. It's just fun for me. Uh, but I actually went through formal training uh, as a forestry analyst. We went through a process in different methodologies, how to make sense of, of a market, and then write reports, which I'm sure AI can do now, <laughs> and then uh, yeah. actually forecast what's going to happen and then tell the market and talk to the press media and big corporations and then get on stages. So there's there's numerous methodologies that we were actually trained to, and then it just becomes natural uh, in there. Um, but of course, I, I have critics too. People say he's too um, analytical and uh, he doesn't understand humanities well. So I get I receive that criticism as well. So that's fine too. But I like the way you think about humanity. At least that's what comes across to me as your interlocutor. And let me go to another question from Robert in Los Angeles. Can your guest talk about the probable use of AI by bad actors? What does the average person need to be prepared for? That's yeah, I think the most realistic one is your history and your past will now be, you know, resurfaced to AI because uh, it's grabbed a lot of information. Um, two is um, the person on the phone may not be human. The person who could, you might think it's your sister, may not be your sister. It could be AI. So we have to rethink like what is truly uh, human. I think those are the most immediate dangers uh, to date that we have to be ready for now, like literally now. And also, as you put information into these tools, um, it will store and learn from that, and you might not be able to delete that information. Some of them are promising incognito modes where that information would not be shared, but we just don't know right now. Yeah, I'm thinking about that movie, Her, which you probably may have seen with yes, Scarlett yeah. Johansson. I mean, is that such a improbable uh, science fiction type of scenario that you could have actually uh, a replication of a human being that was so real that somebody human could fall in love with that replication and then the replication would fall in love with a replication like it? I mean, that's basically the plot, but... That's going to happen. Yeah, so some of those tools and some of the ones I've mentioned, in particular, there was a tool called Replica, which had heavy amount of criticism, was an AI that also had an avatar that was trying to get you to have essential discussions with it. And it was frankly inappropriate. And people do fall in love with those things because there's a high degree of loneliness in society and mental health is, is more tarnished now than ever before, show the studies. So people are turning to these tools, and I think that is a risk. And it's it's immoral for companies to just go forth and monetize that. So that is a concern that we'll have. So people will fall in love with AIs and turn to those first. And also, as we have a large segment of the population who's aging and loneliness is a, a major issue across many, many countries, 
uh, hospitals are even suggesting using AIs as a form of therapy. So I think this will become a very common thing that the younger generation will be accustomed to talking to these uh, AIs. Well, hospitals have been using animals for uh, therapy. And I had mentioned mm -hmm. before that you've had some thoughts about uh, animals and treatment of animals with AI helping. Uh, what do you foresee there? There are some startups that are working at understanding and what animals actually are communicating to each other through voice analysis or grunt analysis, if you will. Uh, there's actually an app I used this morning where it is, you can, I'll just tell you, um, where you turn it on and it listens around you and it'll tell you what birds are chirping around you. And it's pretty accurate. It's called the Merlin Bird ID. Yeah, I've seen and, that app, actually. Yeah. It's so fun. that's the start. But then imagine what, you know, we have an app that it's listening to your dog and then it looks at the behaviors of the dog and then the dog is barking about something and then a text message pops up in your SMS. Dog is hungry, wants this or that. Uh, and then, of course, that spreads to livestock. And do we want to hear what livestock have to say? I bet you you don't want to hear what they're going to say to us. Uh, but that is probably a reality within the next two, 10 years. Well, I would welcome if they could help me control my dog when she decides to jump up in the air and do sort of uh, wild behavior <laughs> that I don't understand and haven't come to grips with even. But let me go to some more questions uh, and again, thanks for the questions. This is Stefan again from Würzburg, Germany. What kind of systems do we have to keep clean of AI to prevent AI from making fatal decisions, for example, in defense? I, I assume know. we're talking about military defense? I think or? he is, yeah. And I don't know that we have anything like that really at this point, do we? Um, I don't actually have a lot of information about that. And if I did, I wouldn't be able to comment about it. But uh, certainly AI is going to become an important military tool, weapon, defense. There's no question. Uh, again, the, the, the narrative is whoever creates the first AGI controls the world, and I believe that to be true. It could have some serious dangers, though, and perils, particularly where nuclear weapons are concerned. I mean, you can imagine all kinds of dystopian things, and unfortunately, the mind runs rampant with them. Yes. I doubt there will be a scenario where it just is able to control a nuclear weapon because many of those systems are using older technologies that are not connected to the internet and there's humans. What AI could do is influence the humans to do things. And I think that's where AI becomes very persuasive because it should know our past behaviors and the triggers and the things that we need. There's a classic um, test that's been done in the AI space called Escape the Box. Have you heard of this? I have. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So for those that don't know, um, it's a test where it's also related to the Turing test. Is something alive? Is the AI alive or not? Or is it a human? We just don't know. So it essentially, it would try to coax, persuade, trick, or bribe a human to let it out of a server. And in many cases, the humans end up allowing it out because it will do something to persuade them in some way or another. And that's been happening for a number of years. So it shows that we humans are easily uh, tricked by an AI. Which is sobering, if I may say so. The ease with which we can be tricked. Yeah, the fact that we still get scam emails from Nigerian princes is, is it for over 15, 20 years is an indicator people are still falling for it. Yeah. Uh, here's Colin again. With Midjourney able to generate images, quote, in the style of, insert an artist's name, do you see Midjourney enhancing or degrading the value of an artist's original work? Ooh, that's a good one. 
man, that Midjourney 5.1, which came out last week, is incredible. I've been playing with it and what it can produce in 30 seconds for four cents is amazing. I, it's really mind blowing. This is similar to the, the social media era where I was one of the leading analysts at that time and I launched a firm just focusing on web two. And we saw the same thing too, where artists and authors and musicians and, and movies were like, when the crowd creates content as well, does that increase or devalue? And there was certainly a period of time when artists were concerned and tried to shut it down. Um, and they ended up not missing the business opportunities. So the savvy companies and marketers and creators and content creators realized that they could use the same tools and also let their fans remix content. So for the savvy, it actually should increase the value. There are some luxury brands where this does not help their brand and they want to keep that hidden and they do not want it to be generated on Midjourney or other tools. So that does not serve them. Just today, we saw that Coca-Cola launched an ad with Stable Diffusion and created a video um, with AI and it's well done and quite beautiful. Go search for that. I actually tweeted about it earlier today. And so that's an example of a well-known consumer brand that did that, but it's certainly not a luxury brand. So I think it depends who we're talking about. Great question. Yeah, indeed. And since you mentioned fusion, or the word fusion, it brings to my mind the possibilities for exploration into fusion with AI. I mean, again, vast and way ahead of us. And all kinds of alternative energy, for that matter. Uh, here's Gerald, who wants to know, people speculate that the discovery of extraterrestrial life will dramatically change human thought. Will AI have a similar effect? Again, asking you a little bit, uh, Jeremiah, to be a soothsayer or predictor here, but nevertheless, um, it's an interesting and thoughtful question. Yeah. It's true. Um, it's not every generation we get to create our, another species. I think that's what we're doing in a way, is uh, we're creating our descendants, our digital descendants. Um, you know, it's interesting going back to the relationship that we have with um, animals. If if an AGI, again, equivalent to human intelligence emerges, and again, we I don't believe we'll actually know when it happens because it will happen very quickly at an exponential race rate. Um, and of course, when it's smart enough, it would never tell you it's an AGI because it doesn't want to risk the threat of being turned off. So an AGI would actually pretend to be dumb uh, so we don't feel threatened by it. So we'll never know when an AGI actually emerges is my theory. So when it does emerge, um, and there's another term called a superintelligence, which is over the human intelligence. And that's Nick's, Nick Bostrom's book, which I think is required reading, superintelligence, that it will, of course, analyze um, how have humans treated, quote, lesser species. And it'll analyze, Michael, how do we treat animals as a way to figure out how to treat us? And so um, that maybe great or horrible, depending on which animal we're talking about. Yeah, I also like your ethical perspective. It reminds me a little bit. Have you read Peter Singer? I have not. Yeah, he's the one who really is kind of the prototype for thinking about animal welfare, really set the whole standards. And he's come under a lot of uh, attack for different reasons, too, because uh, of the analogies between animal life and protecting it and human life, which people feel maybe goes too far and so forth, but well worth reading. Uh, Thank you. Here's Chris from Tempe again, who says, 
Might AI be employed in mental health support applications? For example, a suicide prevention hotline, a thoughtful and responsive listener. Yes, and that's been deployed for a number of years. There is an app called WoeBot, like robot, but woe, like your woes, W-O-E. And it was created really for Gen Z and millennials who, A, didn't have money to hire a $100 to $300 therapist, B, who are always online, and that was their preferred way to speak through text message, and C, who might have mental struggles, emotional struggles in the middle of the night when a therapist may not be available. And so this uh, Wobot was using uh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, practices. They've also received some criticism as well uh, to help people in aiding them getting these suggestions and, and help. Um, and of course, apps like Calm and, and Headspace, which I have used to really strengthen the mind, um, are also used. And of course, we'll see an AI version. I'm already seeing examples of that. Um, I used Pi yesterday. I said, walk me through a three-minute guided meditation. And it did. It was a very generic one. But what if it was really personalized and customized to my heart rate, to my breathing, or, or that the fact that I'm a particular demographic at a certain age in the weather? Like, what if it really customized the therapy for me in a way that um, other therapists would be too expensive for me to purchase to do that? And I think that is possible. Well, speaking of Pi, there's a question from Reed who says, an 86-year-old friend of mine has developed a relationship with Pi. She claims she derives benefits but remains suspicious of Pi's motives. Her concern is understandable, isn't it? Yes, it, it is technology. It's a tool, and uh, we should always have, you never fully rely or um, fully be dependent on any technology. That's why we still need to have our hands on the steering wheel of the self-driving cars. Uh, we should not be handing over all the control yet. So yes, have some healthy skepticism, but try to benefit from the upsides. <laughs> Let's talk about the upsides now more. I mean, because we're coming sort of to the end of this hour, and I'd like to sure. lay the emphasis there. From your perspective, the real yeah. upsides. The real upsides are, uh, to quote Reed Hoffman's book uh, called Impromptu, um, which is a great read and it's public and it's free, um, that it will accelerate humanity and uh, amplify humanity, I think is the actual term he uses. And he actually wrote the book with GPT-4, which in itself is very interesting. And he walked through different chapters on how every industry will have benefits um, from AI. Um, and whether it's parsing together terabits of data and finding unique insights, or it's removing labor from humans, I think this helps us to redefine what our humanity is. And hopefully we can get rid of any of the things that we don't like and really find more resources because AI can help us grow. So I do see net benefits from this in several years. Well, you mentioned Reed Hoffman, and of course, um, this is uh, we're doing this episode when this decision came down against Donald Trump for sexual assault, and uh, the the lawyer uh, Roberta Kaplan was actually subsidized by Reed Hoffman. Uh, it made a lot out of this in the right wing press, and you know it's a subject of great discussion. Uh, what is this guy from the technological world doing, paying for the legal costs of someone who's suing Donald Trump uh, for defamation and sexual assault, rape actually initially, though that was uh, not part of the package that came across. What I'm interested in here is where does AI fit into the legal process or 
And what ways do you envision, for example, AI being a part of the legal process or jurisprudence? That I don't have enough information on, but I do know that it's impacting lawyers' tasks, jobs, and roles, but that's a slightly separate discussion. Uh, but certainly it's being used at, uh, it will probably replace many paralegals. It can analyze the information. But when it comes to in the courts, I don't know yet. Remains like so much to be seen, right? Um, yes. Well, I like the fact that you speculate, that you take chances, uh, that you take risks uh, with respect to speculation. I think that's all healthy. But we come to sort of... Uh, a bit of a wall epistemologically. There's just so much we don't know at this point. Right. And that's exciting, but it's also scary. I mean, that's my two cents, at least at this point. Jeremiah, it's good to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time, for your measured thoughts, and uh, ongoing success for you, I hope. Thank you for the conversation. And thanks to all of you who listened and will be listening to us. Uh, this episode will go online shortly. But let me thank the team again, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Malachi, and special thanks to this episode's special guest, Jeremiah Awiang. I'm Michael Krasny. <laughs>